Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, after President Putin's version of nasty neighbours invading the country next door on the ludicrous pretext that he was seeking the demilitarisation and denazification of Ukraine, we explore the personal and political aspects of the conflict. The personal account comes from Denis, a 22-year-old currently dodging Russian bombs just outside the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, and weighing up life or death decisions. From panic at the first day, we have went to understanding that we can even die for our values and be sure if one day I'm asked to take the weapon, no matter I can't really use it, I don't know how to do this, I will take it. You are willing to die for your country? For my people, for my country, for my values, yes. As for the political response, well, the UK is providing military assistance to Ukraine and humanitarian aid, but has rejected calls for an emergency open-door policy for refugees from the conflict. If you look at what other European countries are doing, they're way out ahead. And the UK really, at the moment, under this leadership, looks pretty miserly and pretty mean. Ukraine and us, coming up shortly. First, though, a reminder that Byline Times doesn't have a traditional proprietor pulling our strings. There are no advertisers or corporate backers telling us what to say, and certainly no Russian oligarchs. Our journalism is funded by people like you, who take out a subscription to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Those subscriptions also help support Byline TV, this podcast and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. While we're at it, can I just remind you to follow at Byline Radio on Twitter, where on Monday on Thursdays at noon, I host What the Papers Don't Say, an hour-long global phone-in on the big issues of the day via Twitter spaces. To join in, follow at Byline Radio on Twitter. Now, the Byline Times newspaper, website and this podcast have long warned about the threat posed by President Putin, whether through information wars, cyber attacks, interference with elections or the spread of Russian influence through the UK's media and financial systems. Too many people have been happy to look the other way, either because Putin's pals made donations to their political party, flattered them in their newspapers or owned their favourite football club. Some, frankly, admired his nationalist authoritarian politics. The time for benign self-delusion is surely over after the naked aggression shown by Russia towards its neighbour Ukraine, which has included attacks on civilian targets, including apartment blocks. The unfolding horror can feel a little overwhelming. So here's just one Ukrainian's war story. Denis fled from the bombardment of his home city, Kharkiv, to the capital, Kiev, where, as he discovered, there's no let-up. My name is Denis Ganja. I'm 22 years old, still a student, but at the same time served as Ukrainian youth delegate to the United Nations and the Youth Affairs Council under the president of Ukraine. You were forced to flee the city of Kharkiv. Just tell us what the situation was like there, Denis, please. So it's sixth day of war already. We are losing count on days. 
I met the war in Kharkiv at 5 a.m. I woke up from severe bombardment of my city and I understood that it's not very safe to stay in the city. So decided to somehow leave Kharkiv. I don't have a car. So the next day there was the last train to Kiev. While I was on the train, uh, I changed my decision five times. Where should I leave the train in Poltava or go further? So I went to Kiev, stayed there one night at my friend's place <laughs> under very severe bombardment. So we were, we were hiding in the parking. And then I managed to leave outside Kiev on the last underground station train. And did you ever think that your home city of Kharkiv or your capital city of Ukraine would ever come under aerial bombardment from Russia? You know, it's the eighth year of war, but two days before their full-scale war started, my company asked me, Dennis, do you want to evacuate so that to be safe? And they told, no, there will be no war. So I, I was like thinking that this is the Putin's bluff to win something. I don't know what, maybe his strategic things. So I have never imagined this because today, like the center of my city, it's the biggest square in Europe. It's destroyed. There are no like strategic things for Russian troops. There is, There were no of Ukrainian army. It's just the center of the city. It's where the regional administration is. It's where my university is. And they are bombing even this. I don't know for what. This is in the center of Kharkiv, yes? Yes, just the central square. It's like very, very big. There is the very nice park, very nice bars. The regional administration, uh, the, one of the best universities in Ukraine, Karazin University. Also, Derfprom, which served as the government's building while Kharkiv was the capital of Ukrainian USSR. So I don't know for what they're doing this. So what is the real reason? Because I, I don't think that there is any human in them. President Putin has talked about the neo-Nazi influence in Ukraine, has also suggested that Russia and Ukraine effectively are, are one people. What do you make of those comments? First of all, I think that Putin has already agreed to the propaganda which he created. There are no Nazis in Ukraine. We are the very peaceful nations. Our president has Jewish roots. So it's hard to even think about Ukrainian being at some point Nazis. And as for the one people, Russians and Ukrainians, we were occupied by Russia for centuries. We were Holodomor, genocides, wars, destroying our culture, destroying our language. You know all these facts. You know what Stalin did. You know what Lenin did. You, you learned history. How can we even point be one nation? There is no way for this, especially now when they're killing us. This is not the conflict. This is not the crisis. It's not the operation, how Putin likes to call this. This is the war. This is at some point even genocide because they're now bombarding civil districts. 
even while I'm speaking to you, I don't know if my flat is still there. Probably I don't have a place to live already. So what is this? So what sense can you make of what Putin is doing to your country, Dennis? It's hard really to say what he's thinking because the whole world wants to know what is, is his head. You have probably heard the news that they thought that they will win us in two days. They thought that we will meet them, that they brought us freedom from someone. And they didn't expect that the whole Ukrainian nation, I'm saying this, the whole Ukrainian nation will fight back. Even some Western security services thought that Kyiv will stand only for four days. And I'm now speaking to you on the sixth day of war and believe it's more to come, unfortunately. So what is his plan? I don't know. Uh, of course, he wanted to win us, to uh, stop the sanctions, to bring here some government which will be under his control. This was his aim because Ukrainians, we are so free for our life. We are so in opposition to what he is doing. But at the same time, I don't really understand why so much we were like a problem to him because Ukraine, relatively to Russia, a small country. So you're struggling to, to make sense of it in any rational way. We know that they have some plan because the dictator who is up there for 20 years, he, he thinks about something. Of course, he had plans. Uh, his videos were pre-recorded. Everything was like it was a long plan which was developed, which was being developed for years. The thing is that we ruined his plan, and this is really good, and we really need to find out what they're thinking about. But of course, because of his politics, no one in his circle can disagree with him. I think there are no smart people left. It's like in the USSR. When you kill your intelligent people, then you put them to jail. Those who disagree with you, th this leads to the ruination of your country. This happened in USSR many years ago, and this is probably what is happening in Russia, because everybody is just agreeing with him and saying, yes, yes, our leader, we agree on everything you say, even if he's saying stupid things. As you say, this conflict has a history, and it goes back to 2014. And on a broadcast on Byline Radio, my colleague from Byline Times, Paul Nyland, said that we must stop referring to Russian-backed separatists operating within the east of Ukraine. He says, these were not Russian-backed separatists. These were Russians. The invasion began eight years ago. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yes, I do agree, agree with him because we have seen Russian troopers in Crimea. We have seen Russian troopers in Donbass. I personally, in those years, I lived like 50 kilometers from Slovyansk, where it all started. So I have seen the things. And even then, in 2014, uh, there was the Russian flag on the Kharkiv administration. I saw that these were not my people. These were some diversions coming from the nearest regions of Russia. So they like uh, they have done all of these. these uh, these are them. Of course, there are some Ukrainians which are helping them. Of course, even now we have a lot of diversions which we are catching every day. We have a lot of spies. Of course, there are Ukrainians who are unfortunately helping them and they hope that they will stop doing this. 
but everything was orchestrated by Russian KGB agents, Russian army, and uh, Vladimir Surkov, Vladimir Putin, they are all like responsible for this. These are their plans. And Dennis, you are a young man, clearly a young man on his way. You were on the President's Youth Affairs Council. You're the youth delegate to the United Nations for Ukraine, and you founded an NGO, the Public Diplomacy Platform. Before this, what future did you see for yourself? I was like doing my master's. So I just received my bachelor's degree half a year ago, went for master's in my university, planned probably in a year to join the Ministry of Foreign Affairs because like working closely with them for more than two years already. And right now I do understand that my future will never be the same. And it really depends on how good our victory is. I'm sure that we will win. But the question is how good it will be. Because right now, personally, myself fighting on the informational front, on the digital front, I fight not only to stop the war, I fight for the freedom of my country, for the future of my country. I want my country to be prosperous, Europeans, free. I want that we choose what we do and not someone near us telling us what we need to do. Because like Putin says that he is coming to save Russian talking people from Nazis. I'm Russian speaking person. I was born in the Russian speaking region. I have never asked him or any from Russia to help and save me. I, I was always telling them, like, get off me, don't touch me, I'm doing my things. And of course, we're like already dreaming about some future, but right now the future is this, survive the night and continue working. This is my future for like till the end of war. Just give me a sense of the people who you care about who are also affected at this moment. My family is in Kharkiv region. It's rather calm in their town. It was like only like one bombardment so far. My grandparents are in Sumer region in Akhtirka, where one of the most severe fightings are going on. Most of my friends are in Kharkiv right now. Just as I'm talking to you, a friend of mine, her house was bombarded and she's now looking for evacuation. My girlfriend is staying for, I don't know, 60, 50 hours already in the shelter, hopefully with food, but with no water supply or energy supply. Like there, there are like, like now a lot of stories. Some of my friends, of course, are in the territorial defense. Uh, most of them uh, are fighting on the informational front if they have internet. Some are like now working on humanitarian help from European countries. They're staying in the Zakarpatia region, which is the Western region. A lot of my friends are resisting. Uh, of course, they're in danger. We are all now in danger. It's just like, you know, while we were recording this podcast, you have not heard maybe, but I heard some bombing outside. I really, like, I don't care anymore. It's just that I need to continue working no matter the conditions. So this is like already from panic at the first day, we have went to understanding that we can even die for our values. 
and be sure if one day I'm asked to take the weapon, no matter I can't really use it, I don't know how to do this, I will take it. You are willing to die for your country? For my people, for my country, for my values, yes. The West, the United Kingdom, the United States, the European Union have so far been willing to supply arms and support and solidarity to Ukraine, Mm -hmm. but have not been willing to commit troops, not least because of the fear, perhaps, that this would provoke Putin even further and create World War III. Do you think the West could or should be doing more to help Ukraine? I'm very like thankful to all of you because we have not expected such a support to be truth. But what I'm saying to everyone from the West, it will not be enough. We will be living in Ukraine and in the whole Europe, like you're staying with the gun to your head. This has been there for eight years. It's very good that you woke up and finally understood that Russians were lying to you, that they were telling that there were no Russian troops in Crimea. You at some point bought this lie, that there are civil war in Ukraine and some governments bought this lie. And it's now really important to stop him once and forever. This is what I'm saying to everyone. We have now the chance. You're working for, I don't know, McDonald's. Tell your company not to operate in Russia. You're working for some bank, block Russian accounts, send them to us, it's even better. You can help at some point with medicine, with food, anything, bring this to us. Because I don't know how to explain more, I don't know how to find the words, but if you have friends in Russia, some relatives, some probably student fellows, speak to them daily, send them the right information, Make them sure that after they stop this war, the world can change for them also. The key to this, you say, is to beat Putin. Putin must be removed as the head of the Russian state. And until that point is achieved, all of Europe will be at risk. All of the world. He's already threatening us. Your prime minister said the right thing, that he's playing with the nuclear weapons. Of course, at some point, it's a bluff. But still, the person so crazy as him with nuclear weapons, it's, it's dangerous for us. He already sponsored so many wars. He already sponsored so many interruptions, interelections. Russian hackers are working on stealing money from you. This is like our chance. It's like until we are here fighting with the army, until Ukrainians are dying, you sitting in safe countries should really work hard to destroy Russian economy. Putin wants USSR to be brought back, so give him USSR. Where was no Coca-Cola, no burgers, no jeans. There was no travel to anywhere. He wants this. Okay, here you are. So he must be defeated. He doesn't want his people to have freedom. Yes, yes. He never wanted. I don't know if you have seen the video how the group of probably 30 Russian people were running from one cup 
they're so afraid there. I, I don't like the, the, this is what he made to his nation. They are afraid of everything right now. Dennis Ganja, and we'll be keeping up to date with his story over the coming weeks, both here on the podcast and over at Byline Radio. You can follow that on Twitter at Byline Radio. So what of the UK's response? I was at a football match, West Brom v Swansea, where rival fans were united in a minute's applause for Ukraine, a gesture that has been repeated at stadiums up and down the country. Boris Johnson has announced a fundraising campaign with the promise that the government will match money raised by the public. There's a pledge of £220 million in humanitarian aid too, but compared to other countries, our commitment to refugees from the conflict is limited. A much-criticised visa scheme has been changed to allow close relatives of Ukrainian people settle in the UK to come over. It now includes grandparents, children over 18 and siblings, but doesn't apply to those without any links to this country. In contrast, say, to Ireland, which has introduced a temporary open-door policy to those fleeing the war. I've been speaking to Bella Sankey from Detention Action, a group which campaigns against the detention of migrants. How does she view the UK's response? Quite frankly, it's been embarrassing. Over the weekend, we had a Home Office immigration minister suggesting that Ukrainians that are currently fleeing Putin's horrendous assault on Ukraine should apply for visas to come and pick fruit in the UK. So far, all that the government has done is slightly tweak existing visa arrangements, but it's absolutely not appropriate for this situation, for this crisis. And what we need is a much more bespoke and generous scheme that will allow people fleeing for their lives to come to the UK. As well as a completely meagre offer, the government is also doubling down, pushing through its Nationality and Borders Bill, which would have the effect of criminalising a Ukrainian person who manages to get to the UK, fleeing for their lives, but without the prior permission of our Home Secretary, Priti Patel. Under the powers and the provisions in this bill, that person would have committed a criminal offence. They could be imprisoned and they could also be sent to an offshore detention centre somewhere far away in the world just because they've sought to come and claim asylum in the UK. Now, this bill was awful before this horrendous war in Ukraine. But I think this crisis really brings home just how unworkable and deeply problematic this bill is. And what the government needs to do is to drop this bill immediately. I think the government has badly judged where the British public is on this. And I think that this kind of xenophobic approach, which isn't welcoming people that are fleeing persecution, is just not doing justice to the generosity and the humanity that most people in the UK have. Boris Johnson has estimated that something like 200,000 Ukrainians could be allowed to join family in the UK, although he has said that it is difficult to calculate a precise figure. He said the UK will make it easier for Ukrainians already living in the UK to bring their relatives to our country. 200,000 people sounds like a fair number of people. There are those who would question the word xenophobic in that context? 
I think the number that the government has put on people that may come under these changed family rules isn't a particularly reliable number. I don't know exactly how the government has reached this number, but it seems as though they've tried to calculate the number of people that may have family members that would qualify. Um, So it's a pretty hypothetical estimate. There may, of course, be people in the UK with relatives in Ukraine, and those relatives may be planning to go elsewhere because they've also got family members in, for example, other European countries. So I don't think it's a, a very kind of sound estimation when it comes to numbers. But I also think that in a crisis such as this, the government shouldn't be quibbling around numbers and only considering granting refugee protection to people that already have family members here. This is a matter of principle. The situation in Ukraine is absolutely catastrophic. People are being killed in their hundreds, children are dying. And in the context of such a a catastrophic humanitarian disaster, what we should be doing is saying, look, we will take people in and we will play our part in the international effort to offer sanctuary. If you look at what other European countries are doing, they're way out ahead. And the UK really, at the moment, under this leadership, looks pretty miserly and pretty mean. Bella Sankey from Detention Action. And if you've got any comments on what you've heard, please get in touch. GoldbergRadio at gmail.com. That's GoldbergRadio at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed listening to the Byline Times podcast, don't forget that you can also now listen to Byline Radio. Just follow at Byline Radio on Twitter and join us every Monday and Thursday at noon via Twitter Spaces for What the Papers Don't Say. Before we go, news that the Byline Festival returns over the May Bank Holiday weekend. It's the festival that wants to change the world. A mixture of talks, discussions, a Q&A with Peter Jukes and Carol Cadwallader, along with comedy and music. It's at Acklam Village in West London. You can get more details at bylinefestival.com. That's bylinefestival.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.